Hello friends, and thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently working through the Gospel of John in our sermon series entitled, That You May Have Life. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would be edifying for you. God bless. Well, if you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open it to the book of John. John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18 today. John 20. Verses 1 through 18 is where we're going to be today. John 20, 1 through 18. I've been looking forward to this day uh, for a really, really long time. Um, I'm a a pastor, and so preaching is, I mean, it's part of my life, obviously. Uh, We've been going through books of the Bible at Spring Hill on Sunday mornings for a little over three years. We started in Galatians, and we finished Galatians in about a semester. Then we did 1 Corinthians, and we finished 1 Corinthians in a little over a year. Jonah was significantly shorter, and it was wonderful, uh, but it was significantly shorter, so we went through Jonah, and now we've been going through John. We've been in John about a year and a half. It's been a long time. We've been going verse by verse, passage by passage through John, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. We find ourselves in the second to last chapter today, John 20, verse 1 through 18. Um, Now, why am I so excited? Why is today such an anticipated day? Well, for three plus years I've been here and I've preached over 400 sermons, but we've never studied the resurrection story together. How about that? You're thinking, what kind of pastor is this? We never studied the resurrection. Well, you we talk about the resurrection a lot, right? We, we, I've preached about the resurrection many times, but we've never together looked at the actual narrative of the events that transpired. The reason I'm excited is because, guys, this is the, let me listen to this. This is the climax of the story of human history. Think about that statement. This is the climax of the story of not American history, not Western civilization, of human history, and you could even say of the history of the created order. This is the climax. This weekend, every moment in all of time has either pointed forward or backward to this event. In fact, I don't exaggerate when I say every moment of your life even is given meaning and value because of this event. So the reason I say that and the reason I begin with that is that I don't want you to take this passage lightly because it's important. I mean, obviously all of it's important, but this is a very special passage. If your heart is not already soft this morning as you listen to the Word of God, can you just take a moment right now to just ask God to soften your heart? I'm I'm like you. A lot of times Sunday morning comes around and it's just a rush. And even the songs, you feel like they just rush by. And if you haven't asked God to just soften your heart, do that now. Because just as he did for John and Mary Magdalene that Sunday morning 2,000 years ago, he wants this event to move you this morning. So I'm going to do something a little bit different. Let's pray and thank God for a time that we get to study this and ask him to soften our hearts, okay? And you can pray even to yourself as I pray. Let's pray. God, thank you for a passage where we can see that you are on the move. Lord, at this time, soften our hearts as we examine what a beautiful, beautiful moment in human history, the climax even, that all of human history points forward or backward to use it to move us, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. John 20, 1 through 18. John 20, 1 through 18. Should be on the screen behind me if you don't have a copy of God's Word in front of you, okay? John 20, 1 through 18. This is what it says. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. 
So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, If you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Jesus has already uh, done so much. He's already done so much. He has atoned for sin by becoming the curse for us and dying on a cursed cross. Even in his death, he has transformed individuals in death. The criminal on the cross, onlookers looking on. Joseph and Nicodemus that we looked at last week. People that were bold in sacrificial faith and honoring Jesus in burial. And then, as we've already seen, the next day after the burial of Jesus was the Sabbath, which began really at nightfall, right after they got done burying Jesus. Nightfall begins and the Sabbath begins, and it's Saturday. Saturday begins, the seventh day, and as in the Garden of Eden, that is, it's a restful day, a silent day. The entire country shuts down, and even to this day, this country shuts down. And then early the next morning, Seemingly just a a regular day, a loving and devoted follower of Jesus named Mary Magdalene got up to head to the grave to do some treatment on the rotting corpse with spices to honor Jesus even in his death. But it would not be a regular day. Mary would expect a Roman guard to need to roll the stone away from the tomb that's placed in front of the tomb to be able to grant her access, but she is shocked to find what she actually dreaded. And that's that the stone wasn't there. Isn't that strange? It wasn't victorious to her. It was dread because it seemed that someone had stolen the body. We see this in verses 1 and 2. It says, Now on the first day of the week, so that's the day after the Sabbath, Sunday, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was dark and saw that the, stu- the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran 
Good her reaction here. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, who we think is probably John, almost definitely is John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. The picture we see here is that she sees this t- stone rolled away from a distance, and instead of investigating and running up to the tomb and stooping in to look, she's horrified. She's scared, she's terrified, she's upset, she's angry even. And so she runs to get the guys. No doubt she's afraid, upset, likely even in tears already. We see she's crying in verse 11. That's probably already started. She needs comfort. She needs answers. She needs response. And so what appears to be a day of anger and great sorrow would be a day of great joy, a day of great glory, a day of great triumph. What I want to do this morning is that we're going to examine the responses of the two central figures in this passage. And the central figures in this passage, strangely strangely enough, one of them is not Jesus. Isn't that weird? Centrally, John wants us to look at two people and they're not Jesus, either one of them. Obviously, he makes all things happen, right? But the two figures that we're going to examine are John and Mary. The two people that John has at the forefront, John and Mary. And their responses will be our responses as well. So if you're taking notes this morning, this is going to be our structure. Two necessary responses to the conquered grave. Two necessary responses to the conquered grave. Number one is that real faith leads to real change. Two necessary responses to the conquered grave. Number one, that real faith leads to real change. So by now, Mary has run to grab the two men that were their best friends, okay? The closest guys to Jesus, his best friends. She goes to grab them. They're at their home or someone's home, a distance from the tomb. Mary's report is obviously wrong that someone had taken the body, but they don't know that. And so someone has seemingly robbed the grave of their very best friend. And so they sprint, which makes sense. If someone desecrated the, the grave of your loved one the day after you buried them, you would be really aggravated, really angry, offended even. And so these guys, with great passion and fervor, run to the graveside. Verses 3-5 through say this, So Peter went out with the other disciple, again, John most likely, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple, again, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he did not go in. Personally, I think that there's some humor had. I do think that John is the one that's being talked about here. And obviously John wrote this gospel. And so he just throws it into the say, I'm faster, right? Uh, He's faster. He arrived first. I don't know why he includes that detail other than just to tell us exactly how things uh, went, how exactly they transpired. But John is also not just faster. He's also more gentle. John is more analytical than Peter. Peter is the one who emotionally rushes into action. We've already seen this in several ways, not to mention him chopping off a guy's ear because he responded in fervor and action. But John's not like that. He's gentle, he's analytical, he's cautious in his approach. Emotional even. Peter, though, is zealous, rushing into action. Verse 6, Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. So John stops short 
of the opening of the tomb, which by the way, we talked about this last week, but if you weren't here, the, a tomb back then, it wasn't like a, a grave in the ground. And I know you guys have seen, you know, illustrations of this and portraits of this for, you know, in, in classrooms for children or whatever it may be. Uh, it's, it's cut out of the side of a mountain, all right? And it may even dip down into it a little bit, but there's a gigantic stone that will be rolled in front of it. But the grave, the tomb, wouldn't be in the ground so much. It would be more like in the ground and in the side of a mountain. And so they run up, John stops short of this place, and the reason why he would do this is because he's a Jewish guy, and if you enter into a grave that a dead guy has been laying in, you are making yourself ceremonially unclean to be with that body, all right? And so John is thinking, wait a second, I'm not just going to run in there, let me just, let me just look, okay? Let me just look and see, and even the people that went to prepare with spices and herbs and things, they would uh, have to make themselves ceremonially clean after the fact. And so it was a little bit of a risk to just go into this grave. So John stops short and he's thinking this thing through. He peeks in, obviously has an obstructed view because all he sees is these expensive linen wraps on the ground, these cloths, which would be unusual to him and would get him thinking, now why would grave robbers or even Roman officials leave behind expensive linens. I mean, the Roman officials just cast lots for Jesus' garments. Why would they leave these expensive linens here? If the Romans moved it, or if grave robbers took away this man's body, why would they leave this stuff? It's, it's unusual. It's confusing. It would also be a mess to transfer or transport a bloody, nasty body without these wraps around the body. And so John sees these things and he's thinking, what in the world? This is strange. But when passionate Peter entered, he saw more than the linen body wraps because he entered. Remember, he's not, he's not analytical. He's not stopping. He is going in there. All right. Verse seven. Peter saw not just the linen cloths lying there. He says, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, you would think that Peter even would believe in this moment, but Luke 24 tells us that Peter was confused, and he went away confused, but not John. Finally, John determines that it's worth it to check it out for himself, but there was no confusion in his mind. Verses 8 and 9. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw, check this out, and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Burglars in a hurry would not nicely fold expensive face cloths over to themselves. It didn't add up. The only possible yet impossible answer was that Jesus had risen. I mean, imagine the emotional and mental rush that went through John's mind at this time. Jesus is clearly he did it himself. Wait a second. What? That's not possible. What's happening? And I like to think that John had this moment where we like to say that life flashed before his eyes, but I think that John had this rush of memory where he understood all that Jesus had done and said. Brooke and I went to see a movie um, a couple of nights ago. It was a, it was a mystery movie where, um, you know, there's all these, is it whodunit kind of thing, right? And at the end, kind of all the pieces sort, start to fall into place and uh, it has flashbacks and you have this big climax where all these blanks are filled in, where you're really unaware of how things are going to fall in. And then at the very end, you're finally aware of how all the pieces fit into the puzzle. And then you think, oh, that makes sense as to why that happened. Oh, that makes sense as to why that happened. I think that this is what we see in John right here, is that this moment, he sees the face cloth and the linen wraps and he says, this doesn't make sense. Oh, wait. Yeah, it does. 
Yeah, it does. You see, John had seen Jesus be Lord over a lot of things. He'd seen him be master over a lot of things. We saw him that he was master over the body hundredfold, healing lepers and paralytics and the blind. Clearly, Jesus is Lord over the body. John knew this. We saw that he was Lord over the seas. He calmed the seas. He walked on the seas. Jesus was clearly Lord over the seas. He was Lord over the wind. He was Lord over bread and fish. Lord over wine and water. He was Lord over demons because he cast them out at the word. He was Lord over animals. He was Lord even over dead men as he raised Lazarus, simply saying, come out. John knew something about Jesus, and that is that the created order submitted to him. The created order submitted to Jesus, and John knew that. And now, John knew the truth. He had seen Jesus be Lord over a lot of things, but he'd never seen him personally exercise lordship over himself being dead. What he saw in this moment with that linen wrap and that face cloth nicely folded was that Jesus is Lord over the grave. He is Lord over the grave. Maybe it brought to mind what Jesus said to Martha earlier in John eleven twenty five when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. You better believe it. And this is what John sees in this moment, is that he doesn't answer to death. Death answers to him. He believes. But clearly, John doesn't know how to react to this moment. And you can imagine why. He doesn't know how to react. Verse 10, Then the disciples went back to their homes. You know, if this is a movie or something, you'd expect to, to, to watch or read something there that says that, that they had this, this celebration and they were jumping up and down and they were hugging each other, but that's not what happens. It seems what happens is that John's just mystified. Wow, this is amazing. But yet, we read that Peter walks away confused. Did John even say anything, you wonder? He would sound crazy for even suggesting it, wouldn't he? But most importantly is that he believed. You see, John, I believe, already had saving faith. He's a disciple of Jesus. It's clear that they, these guys had saving faith. But it seems that John's faith was solidified in this moment. You see, he would never be the same. We read this book, the book of John, and we even examine his ministry, and that those things become evidence of the fact that his life would never be the same. And I think that we learn something in John's life. Though he had saving faith, his faith wasn't solidified yet. And because of that, it wasn't totally transformative yet. The reason I say that is because, guys, far too many that belong to Jesus have saving faith, but are not being daily changed by their faith. Far too many even in this room have saving faith. Believe, I believe that you've made a transaction with Christ. We have repented and believed in the gospel. And yet, so often you're morally indistinguishable from the rest of the world. That doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, you couldn't tell me the last time that you had an evangelistic conversation with a lost person. If I were to ask you to describe to me, what is the gospel? Why do you have assurance of, of salvation? You'd probably fumble through that question a little bit. I'm not trying to rain on your parade. I'm just trying to say, sometimes I think we fall into the trap of thinking that, that faith is, is the end. Faith is a means to an end. 
Faith is the means to the end of worship, and that is daily transformation more into the image of Jesus. And I think that what we see here is that when John had a real encounter with the resurrected Jesus, he was never the same. And I don't know how many of us can say that we've never been the same. The difference maker for John was that he was crashed into by the reality that Jesus died for him, but also that Jesus conquered the grave for him. In short, maybe the reason that you aren't being transformed is because it hasn't really become real to you yet. That the weight of sin, your sin, hasn't become real to you yet. I remember the moment when sin, my sin became real to me, that I was no longer saying, well, I'm not as bad as is those guys over there that are that are getting wasted, and, and that guy over there who's a deadbeat, drunk, and and a drug addict. I'm not I'm not as bad as them. And so, morally speaking, yeah, I'm a sinner. But you need to know the weight of your sin. You know, in a court of law, if you kill someone, you know what you're called. You're called a murderer. How many times does it take to kill someone? Just once, and you're a murderer. In the court of law, if you steal something and you get convicted of that crime, do you know what that makes you? A thief. You may never steal again, but you are a thief. Folks, you may, you may not every day go tell lies, but you're a liar. You may not every day, or maybe you are, lusting after someone that you shouldn't be with your mind or even with your body. You may not be doing that every day, but you are an adulterer. You may not actively be hating someone every day, but you are a murderer. You may not be gossiping every day, but you are a gossip. You may not be picking up stones of of idol worship, but you are an idolater. You may not be a deadbeat laying around every day, but you're a sloth. You may not be overeating every day and filling your mouth with food way beyond what you need to be doing, but you are a glutton. You may not actively be saying that you're praising yourself, but you are a worshiper of self because it only takes once. The reason I say all that is to say, know the weight of your sin. You aren't a good person that sins sometimes. You're a thief, an adulterer, a murderer, a glutton, a gossip. You're bad to the core. But God did something about it. He did something about it. And I think if we understand the weight of our sin is the only way that we can begin the process of transformation. And that is that despite all of those things being absolutely unequivocally true about who you are, listen to this. God loves you. God loves you. In spite of you, God loves you. He loves you so much that He bore the wrath reserved for you. Amazing love. And the only reason that you may be with Him in glory is because He got off that concrete slab in that mountainous tomb and victoriously conquered death. And that became real to John in that moment. That's what happened. Is that that became real to him. That Jesus conquered the grave so that He could have life. And when that becomes real to you, Christian, like John, your mind, your body, your heart, and your behavior will be far from perfect, but you will have a zeal and love for the Christ who bought you. And the reality is that so many of us just don't. We just don't. We're apathetic about following Jesus. 
We're not devout. Guys, Mormons and Muslims should not be more devout than the people that are believers in the one true living God. It just shouldn't be the case. And yet we use grace as a license to not be devout. The necessary response to a conquered grave is that real faith leads to real change. And I'm speaking as someone that needs it more than you do. Number two. Two necessary responses to the conquered grave. Number two is to embrace identity change. To embrace identity change. And this is glorious. This is so glorious. Embrace identity change. I love that John chose to include this next part. In Mary's story, God has given us a profound blessing to behold that encountering Jesus turns sorrow into joy. Amen? Encountering Jesus turns sorrow into great joy. And you notice, even in verse 11, the very first words are, but Mary. Her response is different than John's. But Mary. Her response was different. Verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. So whether time overlapped or not, it seems that Mary and the guys missed each other. Now remember, they sprinted, all right? They got there fast. She's moping. She's upset. She's angry even. It doesn't make, it makes perfect sense that they wouldn't be there at the same time together. So whether time overlapped or not, she is now at the tomb alone and she's brokenhearted. And so she then stoops as John did, looking obstructed, but looking into the tomb. But God graciously showed her far more than linen wraps. Verses 12 and 13. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. That question, why are you weeping, is, is sort of strange. It's, it's a very, very, very gentle rebuke. It's sort of like saying, why would you be weeping? Sort of like you shouldn't be, but I'm tenderheartedly saying, why would you be weeping at this time? And so she reemphasizes her assumption about someone taking the body. Look at verse 14. Having said this, <clears throat> she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. So probably what happens is that Mary suddenly becomes aware of someone else near the tomb. Maybe she hears them or sees them in her peripheral vision. And she turns to that person with the same intent. That is to find out if he or she knows what happened to the body. And maybe, you know, I'm just trying to use my imagination. If she's looking into the tomb and someone she hears behind her, maybe she looks and she sees a glance. And so maybe she does this. Maybe she fully turns around. I'm not sure. Maybe Jesus supernaturally blinded her from being able to see who he really was. Or maybe she just got a glance out of the corner of her eye and saw something someone and started to ask the question it's hard to use your imagination here but just use it who was this person she assumed that it was somebody else verse 15 this is what jesus said to her woman same question why are you weeping whom are you seeking supposing him to be the gardener she said to him sir if you've carried him away tell me where you have laid him and i will take him away it's the same gentle rebuke that the angels just gave. It's, woman, why are you weeping? Remember from last week that Jesus was buried uh, in a garden. 
just you'd think, well, that's a weird place for a cemetery to be. Well, it wasn't the same as it is today. Jesus was buried in a garden structure, and the literal word for that implies it was like a plantation or an orchard. It was something very elaborate, something very fancy, this place where Jesus was, was buried. It was a rich man's tomb, probably even maybe owned by Joseph of Arimathea. It was a very nice tomb. This is where Jesus was buried. And so it makes sense that if she saw somebody, she would assume that perhaps it's the gardener that had come up behind her. And she thinks that maybe the gardener may know. It's his garden, by the way. Maybe he would know where the body was taken. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, that's their language, Rabboni, which means teacher. This is so beautiful. A woman in anguish, a woman in despair, instantly overcome by astonishment and delight. In an instant, her life is changed. John 10 calls Jesus the good shepherd. Says in verse 3 and 4 that he calls his own sheep by name. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in this interaction. You guys ever watch those videos uh, you see on Facebook or YouTube or or something where uh, a soldier comes home. Soldier been gone a long time, comes home, and there's this really emotional homecoming. Uh, it, those things are tear jerkers, right? And you guys know what I'm talking about. They're emotional because you see the overwhelming joy. It's, it's like you know their story, that they've been sad for a year, two years, because they haven't had their loved one. And suddenly, in an instant, it changes. Man, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall in this. Because Mary turned from absolute, hopeless despair into overwhelming, astonishing joy. She clearly clings to him, maybe falls at his feet, not sure. But then Jesus gives a very sobering instruction to her. Obviously, we think much joy, celebration, tears, laughter even, but Jesus says something strange here. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. I'm going to stop there for just a minute. Can't go into it a whole lot, but I'm just going to paraphrase the tone of what Jesus has just said. He's not diminishing that it's a time for joy, but he's saying this is also a time for sharing the good news, not for clutching me as if I'm some, you know, jealously guarded private dream come true. So he says, stop clinging to me. But instead he gives her instruction. The rest of verse 17 and 18 says, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. What he says is, go tell my disciples that I'm in the process of returning to my father and to your father. And so Mary immediately goes and tells the disciples of his resurrection. But I want to look beyond Mary's action to the substance of her declaration. you got to think, I mean, the very first instruction that Jesus gave to Mary, the very first one, had to be of vital importance. So why did he say these things? What's behind the substance? You see, something has happened here that it's very easy to miss. Something so incredible that there's no way that I can sufficiently help you see its beauty, but I'm going to give it my best shot. In verse 1 of this chapter, we saw that these events happened on the first day of the week. Again, after the Sabbath, the day of rest, 
On the first day of the week, it was a weekly beginning of new work. Work began on the first day of the week. And what we see in this passage, as Jesus is resurrected, that God has a new mission about, is that God began His work of creation on the first day in the Garden of Eden, and now things are re-upping. You see, God began His work on the first day of creation. On day one, He said, let there be, and it was. Adam was the firstborn of mankind, first man and the father of mankind, and Adam was a gardener. He tended the Garden of Eden. He was a gardener, but Adam sinned, and because he sinned, we all have sinned with him and fallen from union with God. Romans 5.12 says this, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. But now it is once again day one. It was the first day when he began his creation. And now it is once again day one and God is creating again. Guys, it's not a coincidence that Jesus was mistaken as the gardener because he is the new Adam and the firstborn of the new creation on the first day of the week, the day of the new creation. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? Creation. Day, first day of the week. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. No more are we heirs of sin and heirs of the curse through the man, the first man, Adam. When Jesus conquered the grave, more was accomplished than you becoming a sinner, welcomed by grace as a mere guest into the kingdom of God. No. As verse 17 says, what Jesus said is that He is my Father, but He's also your Father. Something changed. Your identity changed. You were transformed in the resurrection from a cosmic criminal into a child of God. Do you understand that? You were Barabbas, and now you're sort of like Jesus, a son of God. Your identity's changed. No longer are you a cosmic criminal. You're a son or a daughter of the Most High, an heir to the throne of God. In Christ you may be an heir of righteousness through the firstborn of the new creation. Check this out. 108 times in the book of John, Jesus refers to God as Father. 108 times. 27 of those times, He refers to Him as My Father. 71 of those times, He refers to Him as The Father. One time in all of the book of John, does He also refer to Him as the disciples Father, right here. It's the first time. No longer my Father and the Father. He's your Father. It's also the one time in John, listen to this, it's the one time in the book of John that Jesus calls His disciples brothers. One time. One time He calls them brothers. This is a cosmic shift. No longer Are you severed from God? Some outcast, condemned. No longer are you severed from God. The good news of the gospel, the crucified Jesus and a resurrected Savior, as you have gone from severed to God to not just being welcomed, but you're in His family. You're a co-heir. That's why we sing that song, students. We sing that song, No Longer Slaves, right? This is what that song means. 
no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. That's a beautiful, beautiful testimony to what we have in Jesus. So I want to finish this part, the second part, with three things, three, three, three kind of indicators of what it means that we're now changing our identity, children of God. Number one is that we have an inheritance, right? We have an inheritance. The reason I use that word inheritance is because God uses that word. I can't go into the details about what that inheritance is because, to be honest, I don't know. But I know that it's glorious. And I know that there is treasure to be beholded. I know the primary treasure is Christ. But we have an inheritance that we are waiting for. And listen, folks. You can't... This is, so, this is such good news. You can't lose God's eternal inheritance by bad effort, by your effort. You know why? Because the internal inheritance wasn't gained by your effort. This is that great news. You can't lose it because you never earned it. Christ secured it. Number two, love. We have love because we're children of God. And sort of the same logic is true. God's emotions toward us don't rise and fall daily. Like the way that we relate to each other, there are days that it's easier to love you than other days. You know that? And the same is true for me. It's a lot easier for, for my parents and for Brooke to love me some days than other days. And I had one of those weeks. You know what I'm saying? It's hard to love us sometimes and we have a hard relationship with each other. But listen, God doesn't ebb and flow like you and I do in His relationship with us. No. He doesn't do that. His emotions toward us don't rise and fall daily. It is fixed, not based on your performance, but based simply on the fact that He is a loving God. Number three, acceptance. As a child of God, you have an inheritance, you have love, and you have acceptance. What I mean by that is that you have confidence before God and that it doesn't rest on what you have done or what you are doing, but it rests on what Jesus has done and is constantly doing, sustaining you. The moral of the story is very simple. Because of Christ, you have everything, and without Him, you have nothing. And here's the thing. God is still creating new citizens, new children, new heirs of His kingdom today. Hear me say this. You are a cosmic criminal. You're not a good person that sometimes messes up. To the core, you are broken. More than broken, you're a rebellious person. Insurrectionist, a criminal, cosmic criminal before God. But Jesus paid your crime. He paid for it. The cross of Christ is where He paid for that. And so my plea to you today is that if you've already placed your faith and trust in Christ, is to renew a spirit of worship within you and understand that when you sing songs like, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God, that means so much more than anything that you and I can possibly conceptualize. You're not just a welcomed guest into the house of God. Wouldn't that be enough? Wouldn't that be enough? You're an heir because of the work of Christ. 
And if you come into this place, and maybe something has resonated, we talked about real faith, and that maybe maybe you've prayed a prayer, and, you, and you've, you've gone through the motions, and you've played church for a long time, but never seen real, tangible fruit, that really you've never even considered the fact that you are terrible without Jesus. And that that resurrection really, really happened. And if that's you, listen to me say this. You today are a cosmic criminal. But if you turn from your sin, place your faith and trust in Christ, don't, don't clean up your act before you come to Him. He wants you filthy as you are. Because only He can clean you up. Hear me say this. He wants you in His family. He wants to adopt you. And not adopt you like Jesus is my blood son, but the rest of these are my adopted children. No. You get all the privileges that Christ has. And you earn zero of them. So join me today in worshiping the Christ that gave us everything when we had nothing for His glory and for our good. Let's pray. We want to thank you for listening to this week's sermon. For more information, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Spring Hill Baptist. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus in loving above all else.